Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the things that happened this week in our lives that led us to this point in our lives. Where we can come together once again as brothers and sisters and as your children uh, to hear from your word, to hear from you, to hear what you uh, want us to see and to hear and to make a part of our lives. So Lord, as, as it's already been prayed, I pray that you would uh, remove all distractions from us, remove all preconceptions about things, especially that the culture promotes, and open our, open our minds, open our eyes to see what your word teaches. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most extreme sports in existence is base jumping, or jumping off of super high objects and deploying a parachute before getting too close to the ground. Interestingly, the term base is actually an acronym. I don't know if anybody, I didn't know this, uh, but it's actually an acronym to stand for the four objects officially recognized as objects included in this sport. Building, antenna, span, like a bridge, and earth. That's what the, the three, uh, four letters stand for. In 1912, the first recognized base jump was by a man named Rodman Law, who parachuted from the torch of the Statue of Liberty. Most, notably, uh, most notable was a jump in 2013 by Russian man Valery Rozov, who with a gliding suit specially designed for him by the energy drink company Red Bull, jumped from the northern peak of Mount Everest at a height of 23,690 feet. Rozov successfully parachuted to a glacier below and set the world record for highest base jump. Now here's some footage from that jump. Maybe. Can we just go ahead to the next slide, please? Worked earlier. Is it frozen? All right, we won't worry about that. Uh, so I can't imagine jumping from that kind of height, though. I still remember when I jumped off the high dive for the first time at the public pool during the summer in between kindergarten and first grade. I, I wouldn't allow Aurora to do that. But I was terrified up there with my floaties securely strapped to my body, but determined to do it. I remember shaking incredibly much, but knew I was not going back down that ladder. There was only one way that I was going to go anywhere, and it was going to go off the edge of that high dive. So I gathered up my courage and just kind of fell over the edge of the board <laughs> into the water below. And like I mentioned in last week's, uh, we, we won't worry, but we'll go on to the next slide. All right. Like I mentioned in last week's message, that Sunday's, last Sunday's message would serve as the jumping off point for other messages related to this topic of gender, gender identity, and gender roles. And last week we looked at generally what the Bible teaches about gender. That there are only two genders, male and female, and that's God's blueprint for what the Bible, uh, for, for, for human marriage and sexual relationships. And what's that? That a sexual relationship must only occur within a marriage, and a marriage must only be between one man and one woman. 
The Bible also clearly teaches that God created these two genders, male and female, with specific characteristics, representation, and purpose. And it makes no theological or biblical sense that God will create a biological male, for instance, with the inherent characteristics, purpose, role, and representation of a biological male that's inextricably connected to that, and also intentionally create him with the opposite gender with its inherent characteristics, purpose, and role. To say I'm being who I am, who I was born to, me, to be, does not match up with I am who Christ is making me into the image of. What one may think is the way God made them to be does not agree with what the Bible clearly teaches does not come from God and may very well be a result of the curse on all creation that Paul talks about in Romans 8. We also talked last week about the general existence of different characteristics, purposes, and roles between the two genders that God created, male and female. It's rooted in the different roles the members of the Trinitarian Godhead have in perfect love and communion with each other. Each member of the Trinity is equal in being and nature, but they willingly submit to each other in their roles. We saw that the Son submits to the will of the Father and only acts out of obedience to the will of the Father, not his own. We also saw that the Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. It's an established system of order, of authority within the Trinity as they relate to each other and as they relate to humanity. So as men and women are both made in the image of God, it shouldn't come as any kind of surprise to us that an established system of order of authority is passed on to both men and women. And so we're jumping off of last week's message as the base to today taking a closer look at this system of order between Christ, men, and women. And so the first point that we come to this morning as we work our way through this is the base. If you remember from last week, the specific contextual issue that Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church here is this. In this time period and culture, it was customary for women to wear a head covering as a way of publicly portraying that she was morally respectable, especially in the area of sexuality. It signaled that she was attached to a man. If she was married, then to her husband, and if not, then to her father as under his authority. We looked at last week how the system of order starts with God, as all things must start with God. In verse 3 of our passage this morning, we saw that God, or the Father, is the head of Christ. We already talked about that, that the Son submits to the will of the Father, and as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, even to the point of tortuous death on a cross. The son did not do or say what he wanted to do or say. He only did or said what the father told him to do or say. Why do you think Jesus spent so many hours by himself in prayer? He needed the presence of the father and his power and to know what the father wanted him to do. The Son is not inferior to the Father, but he did submit to the Father's authority. Next in that sequence is Christ being the head of man. Why man? Well, we looked, we looked, as we looked at last week, man was created first. And as such, was created with the role and purpose to represent humanity before God. 
We saw that sin did not spread to humankind after Eve disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit. It did only when Adam did, for he was the representative of humankind before God, and therefore he was the one held responsible for it. That role of the man being the representative and therefore the one held responsible for the state of things is how God created the family structure to be and for the church structure to be. The husband and father is a spiritual representative of his family. The husband and father is a spiritual representative of his family. And he will be the one held responsible by Jesus for the spiritual state of his family. Men, again, I say it, if you're shirking this responsibility off, you better find it quick because you're going to be held responsible for it anyway. That's not going to be, that excuse is not going to hold up before Jesus. Oh, I, I just didn't want to do it. This same role is seen in the New Testament church system of authority as well. You remember that while there is evidence of women being deacons in a church, there's no evidence for women being elders and therefore teaching elders or pastors. In fact, every bit of instruction directed at elders is to men. And like I said last week, there are places in the world where there are no scripturally qualified men to hold this church office, and the women have to pick up some of the slack. But where at all possible there are scripturally qualified men, only they should hold the office of elder and pastor. And that's what leads us back to our passage this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's all right. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's in the Old... Uh, it's in, I'm sorry. It's in the New Testament. <laughs> you keep flipping if I told you it was in the Old Testament. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 4. We read, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. As we've seen, the head is the symbol of authority. Christ is the what of the church? The head of the church, right? Christ is the head of man. And so the symbol of that authority is the literal and physical head. In the context in which Paul is writing, Men must leave their heads uncovered while they ministered in a service of worship, for he was the authority directly under Christ's authority. And the spiritual meaning of this is this. There should be nothing spiritually, such as sin or disobedience, between him or God, or symbolically between him and God, like a head covering. He should be able to minister unencumbered, fully in the power of the Holy Spirit with nothing dampering or hindering that. That's the point Paul's getting across in verse 4. Verse 4 is the base for how Paul addresses the issue at hand within the Corinthian church. Apparently there were many women within the congregation who had cast off their head coverings. Without getting into a debate about whether or not women should continue to wear head coverings today, remember what they signified from last week. Moral and especially sexual respectability. Like a lack of covering on women does today, does that have any place in the church? No. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. Correct answer is no. Paul had already spent three entire chapters teaching against any whiff of sexual immorality. 
In addition, and especially as it pertains to our current discussion, the women casting off the head coverings also showed that they were casting off the system of authority that God established at humanity's creation. Christ is the head of man as the authority, and as we've already discussed in, in role, man is the head or representative of authority over the woman, specifically theologically before God and in the family and church structures that God created. As we've seen and I've been quite emphatic about as we've been talking about this, this does not in any way convey superiority or inferiority in value between men and women, but in role. No superior or inferiority in value. We're talking about roles. As we saw in verse 3, God being the head of Christ does not mean that he is greater in value or being than the son. And likewise, man, be, man being the head of woman does not mean that man is greater in value or being. But what were the women promoting by casting off their head covering symbolically? They were casting off this established order of authority and promoting themselves as being equal to men in authority, specifically within the church structure and possibly in their family structure. How does Paul address that? Verses 5 through uh, 6. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is the one she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her hair shaved, let her cover her head. Paul sees this, what the women are doing in the church, as shameful. Like we talked about last week, Back in this culture, if a, if a husband discovered his wife had been cheating on him, he had the right to force her to chop all her hair off or get her head shaved in order to publicly portray her shame. Paul is saying that the women who were doing this were bringing just as much shame upon themselves as an adulterous woman would do. That was a pretty powerful thing to say. Now what I do want to point out here, though, is something that's noted by a biblical scholar, and that's this. In Jewish synagogues, women were rarely allowed to participate in the service of worship at all. You would very rarely see a woman participating in the service of worship in a synagogue. But in verses 5 through 6, what do we see? Paul is not condemning women participating in the worship service at all. But if done with the right attitude and respect for God's established order of authority, that's what, that's what he's rebuking. So we talked about the base, what he's basing all of this on, and next we're talking about the beginning. Well, Paul moves on to explain the theology behind all of this, verses 7 through 9. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That was our scripture reading this morning. Now, to fully understand what Paul is getting at here, like last week, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, the first book of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis. We discussed this a little in this past Monday's men's Bible study, and I might add, again, it's not too late to join us every Monday evening at 6.30 over at the ranch house. 
like I said, we had 18 guys come out on Monday, and I'm praising God for that. And I'm done with my shameless plug for that now. We already talked a few minutes ago why man shouldn't symbolically have his head covered. Here we dig into that a little bit more. God did not create man and woman, woman at the exact same time. God did not create man and woman at the exact same time. He could have, but for a reason, he didn't. We see in verse 7 that God created man in his image. He also created woman in his image to a certain extent. That is reflecting some of his attributes like love, faithfulness, peacefulness, etc. But in this context, when Paul says that God specifically created man in his image, he means as his representative, both to the world and having some authority over it, and also representing humanity before God. We've already talked about how important a role that is. Now going back to Genesis 10, what I want us to do, I'm not, turn back to Genesis 10 with me here. I'm not going to read, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Uh, I'm not going to read every single verse that describes what happens here. But turn here and skim through it as I go through it quick, quickly. God forms man from the dirt. I could make a joke about how some men still looks like that. <laughs> God created man from the dirt. He then places man in the Garden of Eden and originally gives the command to not eat of the forbidden fruit to who? Both to man and to woman? Who does he give the command to? Just the man. As the representative of his future family, it was the man's responsibility to relay that information to his wife and protect her from disobeying it. He didn't do a good job of that, though, did he? We also re read that as God's representative to the world, Adam named all the animals in the world. But God had a point to this. It was both to show Adam and the animals who was an authority over the animals. But as we see in verses 18 and 20, it was to show Adam that he was not complete. And he needed something. That's huge. When we're talking about gender and gender value, that's huge. God wanted man to see how much he needed help to live life and that he needed a woman. And so God did not create woman out of the dirt, but out of man himself. We see in Genesis 2 that God put Adam under divine anesthesia and performs the first operation in the world by removing one of his ribs and closing up the void space. Out of that rib, he created woman. You may have already heard the famous quote by the Welsh, Welsh theologian Matthew Henry, who lived primarily at the end of the 1600s. Women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart to be loved by him. It's a beautiful description of that, isn't it? And that's exactly what we see immediately after a woman is created. She is brought to the man, and in doing so, God officiated the first marriage ceremony. In fact, when Adam sees her, this is so awesome, he sings the first love song ever recorded in history. He sings the first love song ever recorded in Genesis 2.23. 
Some generations here think the, first, the, the best love songs are from the 60s and 70s. But it was actually well before that. Thousands of years before that in Genesis 2, 23. So we have the base, we have the beginning, and we have the bridge to today. What does this all mean for us today? Adam declares the entire point that man, men and women need to see when it comes to gender and gender roles. Men, and especially husbands, your wife, as a woman, is originally part of you, and when you married her, you made that connection whole again by once again becoming one in every way. If you are breaking that commitment by compromising that faithfulness to your wife in any way, whether it be emotionally or sexually, you better get that right before God and before your wife. Treat her as your greatest treasure because originally she was made out of you and you cannot function and live without her. It may not come easily or naturally sometimes. That's why Paul has to come right out and forthrightly command husbands and Ephesians to love their wives. Sometimes it doesn't come easily or naturally. As her representative before God, you will be held responsible for the way that you treat her and for her spiritual state. See your role as that, as the utmost importance. Embrace that. Claim that and live that role out on an everyday basis. Lead her as her spiritual authority by making sure your life is right with God in every area and lead her by being an example of regular and faithful prayer and Bible reading in the household. If you aren't fully embracing that role, then some repentance needs to be made. First to God, and then to your wife. Step up into that role that God created you to be. Because that's what being a real man is all about. Right there. I address the men first as the representative of their wives and families. And now I want to address my sisters here. A major reason for the ideal of the man being your spiritual authority is for your protection. I'm not coming at it from a chauvinistic or misogynistic angle. Just as any one of us has the blessing of resting in God as our protection, ideally a blessing of being a woman is finding protection in the spiritual authority and leading of her husband and of the church eldership. Why? Because it's not and should not be on you. You are not the one held responsible for the spiritual state of your family. Ideally, it's the man's. Women, for those of you whose men forfeited that right a long time ago, you are doing your best in raising your family, and Jesus will have grace upon you for spiritually raising your family as best as you could. You will not be held in the same responsibility as a man would. However, what you will be held responsible is how you see your man. 
Paul has to command the Ephesian wives, he commanded the Ephesian husbands to love their wives. What does he command the Ephesian wives to do? To respect their husbands. Because that sometimes doesn't come easily or naturally. That very often does not come naturally, just as, but just as husbands must love their wives, especially when they don't deserve it, wives must respect their husbands, especially when they don't deserve it. I'm not talking about an abusive relationship. If you are in a physically abusive relationship, find a safe place. Paul puts it this way in our passage this morning, that woman is the glory of man and was created for man's sake. I know that's very difficult to process through in today's culture. But let's think about this biblically. Let's remove our preconceived notions from our culture. And let's think about this biblically. It's obvious from what we saw in Genesis 2 that Eve was made for Adam, and Adam was tremendously grateful for that gift. What was the woman's created role for the man? We see that in Genesis 2 to be his helper, right? That's what we read, to be his helper. What we may interpret as a position of inferiority today, stay with me, is the different role of the woman to the man, and it's actually a very honorable position, if you think about it. So think about it. The man has the position of being the spiritual representative of his family and the spiritual representative of the church. Every man with a family will be held responsible before Jesus himself for the spiritual state of his family, and every man called to lead Jesus' church will be held responsible for the spiritual state of that church. Like I mentioned before, this is certainly not a coveted position. What does women, what does women get to do? Not be the ones held responsible for all of this and to be freed to help the men in their respective positions to achieve a good spiritual state for their families and church, to be that support system. In that way, they are the glory of the man, as Paul refers to in verse 7. For they help to bring honor to their families and to their husbands as the visible authority and representative of those families. Specific to our passage this morning, women bring honor to their church in their community by helping support the church and the men in eldership who will be the ones held responsible at the end. It's a very honorable position. Proverbs 31 puts it this way. Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is more precious than rubies. That's how rare and beautiful she is. Her husband can trust her and she will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And because of that, her children stand and bless her. Her husband praises her and says, There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. Beautiful words, aren't they? The role of the woman is an honorable role and a crucial role to her husband, her family, and her church. 
The problem in the Corinthian church that Paul has to correct is that the women in the church did not see this need to embrace the established roles and authority uh, created at the origin of humanity and would rather start taking more of the man's role and position. But Paul was calling them back to the originally created roles for men and women. And as one biblical scholar noted, the first reason for the theological system of authority that God established and as reflected in humankind, the second reason was how that was seen in the creation of the first man and woman. And the third reason is found in verse 10. Let's read verse 10 together. So yes, please turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be in verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Remember, the head covering was the symbol of the woman being under some man's spiritual authority and protection, either her husband's or her father's. It was for the glory of God, her benefit, as well as the reputation of her husband or father, and it was for a third body of entities. What do we read? What is that third entity in verse 12? The angels. See, the angels are different created beings than as humans. They are purely spiritual beings. They do not inherently have an understanding of God's grace and salvation from sin. God in his wisdom, when they sinned, that was it. When the the third of the angels followed Lucifer and were kicked out of heaven, that was it for them. There is no salvation or redemption for them. So all of the angels have no concept of what we are enjoying and exploring and discovering, and that's the salvation and redemption of humankind. Once a bunch of them sinned, they stayed fallen, and they are condemned forever, awaiting final judgment. These fallen angels are known, of course, as demons. But according to one biblical scholar, no, no angels, fallen or not, are said in Scripture to be made in the image or likeness of God. In other words, we as humans, even in our fallen state, are more like God than the angels are. And He has chosen us to bestow His grace upon us out of His love for us. So the angels are fascinated by all of this. They don't get it. They want to understand. They're fascinated. They watch the church of Jesus very closely, learning from us as to what it means to be children of God. Paul writes to the Ephesians, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's doing this so the angels can watch and and maybe understand this. So Paul is telling the women in the church to put back on their symbol of living out the established system of order of authority so that the watching angels don't think less of the wisdom of God displayed through the church. Paul backs up the fact that women have just as much worth as men in verse 11. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Men and women are not independent from each other, even in role. They were also created to be interdependent. 
They complement each other. And both men and women, fulfilling their respective spiritual roles together, bring glory to God. So again, as we've been talking about lately, our lives are not meant to be lived out to get to give glory to us, they're to be lived out to give glory to God. As such, when we embrace and live out our respective spiritual roles, we bring Him glory. Likewise, when all the men and women of the church come together in their respective roles, using their respective spiritual gifts, and serve God and each other in tangible ways, it's a beautiful and powerful image to a watching world. Paul uses one more piece of irony, most likely towards any men who may have thought they were superior to women. So men here who think that, pay attention. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. In other words, yes, woman did originally come from man, but every other male that's ever existed after that has come from a woman's womb. Again, interdependence between men and women and complementing one another. And at the end, after all, we all originate from God to begin with and we all serve the same God and are all part of His same family. This whole time, Paul has been basing his arguments on special revelation or revelation based on God's Word and the study of God Himself. Lastly, Paul uses natural revelation, or what is seen in the natural world, of which no one needed any biblical knowledge to see. Verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves. Look around you. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? A dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. In the Corinthian culture Paul was writing to, generally it was seen as honorable for a woman to have long hair and for a woman to have short hair, like we discussed, meant she was a dishonorable adulteress. Similarly, it was a custom practice in this time period and culture that if a man wanted to portray himself in an effeminate way to advertise himself in a perverse way to other men, he would grow long hair like a woman. In that way, it was a dishonor to him. Obviously, the time and culture is not the same anymore, nor do people grow their hair out or cut their hair for reasons such as this. What Paul is getting at here, especially as it pertains to our culture, though, is that if you strip away societal and man-made conventions and you look at the very basics of nature, you can tell that there are inherent differences and roles between men and women. So as Paul says, even nature tells us on a very basic level to live out the purposes and roles of the gender God created us to be. As Paul notes in verse 16, But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the church, churches of God. Paul is saying, listen, what I've been telling you is not a new concept. This understanding of an established order of authority, especially as it pertains to men and women, is as old as the human race itself. As such, it's a universal belief held in all God's churches, and there's no reason to be un unnecessarily contentious about it. Paul's hope was that his, this teaching was enough to convince these women who were casting off their head coverings to rethink what they were doing and go back to the universal church practice. Obviously, I'm not telling it 
any of my sisters here to go out and buy a hat that you need to wear to every time you come to church. That is not what I'm saying. The main point is embracing and living out the interdependent and complementing roles that God has established and created us with as men and women. Men, fully embrace your God-given role of representative and therefore spiritual authority over your families, for you will be held responsible for their spiritual state before Jesus. Love and protect your wives as yourself, especially when they don't deserve it since they originated from you. Lead your wife and children as an example of a faithful and loving servant of God, strong in the power of his might. Women, fully embrace your God-given role of support for your husband as the spiritual representative and authority of your family. Show him the respect his position offers to him, especially when he doesn't deserve it. Bring honor to your family by the way you support your husband and raise your children in the faith and knowledge of the Lord. And all of us together, let's all bring glory to God by using our spiritual gifts to build each other up supporting the biblical church system of elder leadership authority that God established, serving one another in the love of Christ, and working together as one to bring the hopeful message of salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. As we work together, embracing our God-given roles, let's see what mighty things God will do in our church and in our community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the point of this message. Difficult topic, difficult message to work through biblically, but a very necessary one. Lord, I pray that we would, that men and women, the men and women here would fully embrace the roles that you created them to be. To live out the lives that you have for them. And all of us together as one church to do your work, bring the message of your gospel out to this world. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.